Welcome to Policy on Demand. I'm Cindy Bloom. And I'm Scott McCandless. For those of you watching and listening in the United States, welcome back from the Memorial Day weekend. And right before Memorial Day, President Biden issued his FY22 budget along with the accompanying Green Book. And here to talk about the details of those documents is Pat Brown. Pat, welcome. Thanks. Good to be with you guys. And I'm going to thank you in advance for reading all of this over the weekend. Uh, why don't we start with the main headline here? What's the bottom line? And what is the messaging, the one key message that you're conveying to companies about this? Well, I think the Biden administration did what they said they were going to do in the Green Book. So what we see is essentially a little bit more detail uh, on all of the proposals that the administration had put forward. So the increase in the corporate rate, the changes to the international provisions, and the individual tax changes are all spelled out in a bit more detail. But if there's a headline here, it's that the administration is following through on what they said they were going to do a month or so ago. Pat, maybe we could get into some of those specifics of the corporate and even some individual tax increases. There are a lot of them in there, as you noted. What are some of the key things that you're watching for and that you think companies need to be most aware of? So we saw $2 trillion of uh, revenue raisers on the corporate side. And again, this is what we expected to see in, in broad brush. Um, half of that is what I would call general changes. So increase to the corporate rate, as well as this uh, book minimum tax, this 15% book minimum tax that the administration has talked about. That was roughly a trillion dollars of revenue raisers. The other half of the revenue raisers, again, what we expected, at least at the headline level. Uh, so changes to guilty, so this is moving to a per country limitation, repealing QBI and increasing the rate on guilty. We also talk, talked about that the administration has said they would repeal the beat and replace it with the shield. So those two provisions together, repealing the beat and replacing it with the shield and making the guilty changes account for almost all of the revenue raised on the international side. So it's almost a trillion dollars. Uh, on the international side from those two changes. Again, there are some other changes on the international side as well, but certainly don't have the same headline grabbing numbers as the repeal replacement of beat with shield and the guilty changes. But there were some things in there that we had not seen before. One of those was uh, the idea of introducing section 265, which denies deductions for exempt income. So this is a, a provision that predates uh, certainly, uh, the Biden administration proposals predates the TCJA, but the Biden administration is proposing to apply Section 265 concepts, including to guilty income. So to the extent that your income is partially exempt under the terminology the Biden administration uses by virtue of the Section 250 deduction, you would lose a portion of your expense deductions to the extent, extent your expenses are allocable to that guilty income. That's a new starter. That is not something that we had detail on previously from the administration's proposal. So that was, if you will, something that, you know, companies will now have to dig into and think about the consequences of that. One other thing that's worth mentioning here is a provision that was dropped uh, at the end of the TCJA. So originally was included in the TCJA, was dropped and was not included in the final law. And that was a restriction on interest expense deductions. So this would have been section 163N had it been enacted in the TCJA. And it's essentially a provision that denies interest expense deductions to a multinational group, whether a US headquartered or foreign headquartered multinational, to the extent the US group is more heavily levered than the global group. So to the extent there's disproportionate leverage in the United States, 
a de deduction uh, would be denied for interest expense to that extent. So again, that's a provision that we hadn't had detail on previously from the Biden administration, but had previously been included in the TCJA and then dropped uh, in, the, in the last stages of that bill. Pat, were there any other surprises or departures from previous proposals? Well, in terms of surprises, uh, Section 265, the application of Section 265 to guilty inclusions, that certainly was a surprise, as mentioned. Um, there were a couple of other things on the corporate side that are, that are also worth noting, uh, one of which is the, the administration, as expected, introduced uh, several additional new energy credits, energy tax provisions. Uh, what was a little bit more surprising in this is that we saw quite a few of these things being introduced as refundable credits. Uh, and th that's an uncommon mechanism, certainly for uh, credits in the corporate space to have those credits be refundable. So the introduction of these additional credits or the proposed introduction of these additional credits on a refundable basis was certainly something of a surprise. There's also a provision in there, um, not necessarily the most significant in terms of revenue, that would treat certain transactions involving stock where a check the box election has been filed as though it is in fact a stock transaction. So in effect, disregarding the effect or the impact of the check the box election when determining the tax consequences of the provision. I won't get into the details on that because it's quite technical, uh, but that is a provision that was brand new and that we hadn't expected to see. Now, on the individual side, I would say the only surprise, if you want to call it that, uh, in the capital gains area. So we had expected that the administration would propose to uh, treat capital gains, tax capital gains like ordinary income for high income taxpayers. What was less expected is that the administration has proposed what they call a date of announcement uh, for the effective date of that provision. And based on some additional details, this is not spelled out in the green book, but based on some additional details we received at the end of last week, the date of announcement is in fact to be that date in late April when the administration released details of this proposal. So this would be really quite retroactive uh, going all the way back to when the American Families Plan was, uh, was rolled out by the administration back in April. Okay, and let's take a look ahead, Pat. So talk about, if you will, the key messages you're going to be conveying to companies about what they should be looking for in the coming days, and what is the next step in the process for the budget? Yeah, so um, for companies, I think the focus is now going to turn back to the Hill. Um, so when the American Families Plan uh, and the infrastructure plan were rolled out by the administration, uh, there was certainly initially some focus on the administration as part of that rollout. Focus then turned to the Hill. How is this being received on the Hill? So for example, we've seen stories about the corporate rate and whether or not, for example, Senator Manchin would support a 28% rate or a 25% rate. Then with the release of the Green Book, some shift of attention as, as, that, uh, as the anticipation of that was building back to the administration. What would the administration propose? What would they put in the Green Book? Now the Green Book's out. The budget's out, the Green Book's out. Now the shift of attention will go back to Capitol Hill Again, now that we have a bit more details on these proposals, what will uh, congressional Democrats, in particular those moderate Democrats, be willing to support? And that will, of course, determine what of the Green Book ultimately finds its way into law. As part of that, of course, we'll continue to watch very closely uh, these bipartisan discussions on infrastructure. If those discussions succeed, the timeline for any of these tax changes is likely to get pushed further and further into the year and we just don't know the outcome of those discussions yet. So I would say for companies, 
be watching the discussions on bipart the bipartisan infrastructure discussions to see where they go. And also we need to now really start paying very close attention to those moderate Democrats in both the House and the Senate. They will determine how far towards the administration's Green Book proposals the Congress is willing to go. And Pat, finally, if we could, let's turn our eyes outside the United States to some international developments. Later this week, the G7 finance ministers will be meeting and there's been a lot of talk about a global minimum tax. What might we expect to come out of uh, this later week meeting? Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see. Now, you know, the, the G7, there was a story, of course, that, that came out a couple of weeks ago in, in one of the mainstream media publications that the G7 was potentially nearing agreement on a global minimum tax. And it was a little bit of a surprising story to those of us who've been following this very closely, because, of course, the G7 has not been driving the process of uh, trying to get towards a global minimum tax. That's really been uh, the OECD and the so-called inclusive framework. So if we see something, and it wouldn't surprise me to see this, to be clear, if we see something from the G7, I would expect something like a statement of support, maybe a statement of firm support uh, for the OECD process and the idea of trying to reach agreement on this July slash October timeframe that the OECD is talking about. So I do not believe we will see the G7 come out and say, we have agreed uh, that there is to be a global minimum tax because again, the G7 is not in a position to deliver that. It's really the OECD process. So th what the G7 can say is, we've agreed that we think the OECD process should move forward and we look forward to a robust agreement or something along those lines. But I still think it's worthwhile watching the language. Uh, we know that there are some members of the G7, notably the UK, who have been very uh, interested in certain aspects of the OECD process, notably Pillar 1, and seemingly cool to other aspects of the process, of course, being the minimum tax proposal. And so how the UK you know, positions itself in this G7 statement will certainly be interesting to watch. We know what the Biden administration's position is, which is they want to see this process move forward and they want to see a robust minimum tax. And we know that France and Germany have made similar statements. But it will be interesting to see how they coalesce together around a statement, which, again, I would expect to be a statement of support, not some sort of a binding agreement because the G7 is just not in a position to deliver that. Pat, thank you very much for your thoughts. Look forward to talking to you again. Thank you. Good to be with you guys. And to our viewers, as always, thank you so much for spending this time with us. You'll notice at the end of this episode, a new video will start with Janice Mays talking about the Green Book. You'll want to listen to that. And in the description to this episode, you'll see our insight about the budget and the Green Book. Remember to stay tuned for the Week in Review. Last week, featuring Chip Harder, we'll have another this Friday as well. Stay tuned for more and take care. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.